For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 15. And Acts chapter 15 has been called by many the most crucial chapter in Acts. It's right in the center of the book uh, as far as just, you know, chapters, all right? And it's also at the center of the book theologically. This is one of the scariest times in the history of Christianity that we are going to look at, where if they went one direction, only God knows what would have happened to the early Christian movement. Although God saw it coming, he was ready for it, and he put, he put the right leaders in the right places for this. The real issue is at stake here, what was required to become a Christian? That's what the early church leaders are going to have to decide. As more and more non-Jews become Christians... Remember, Christianity was just the extension of Old Testament Judaism. The Jewish Messiah had come. All the original apostles were Jews. It started in the, in the city of Jerusalem. And yet now non-Jews were becoming Christians. And so what do we do with these people? What do they have to do? Is simply the grace of God enough? Simply putting your trust in Christ? That seems pretty easy. Is there more stuff that you have to do? As humans, we want to create religion and we want to add more to the finished work of Christ. You know, do non-Jews have to become Jews? That's a real question that they had. Did they have to follow the Old Testament law? Did they have to take on the practice of um, male circumcision, even if you're an adult and you haven't been circumcised? That's a pretty important issue. If you know what circumcision is, you know what I'm talking about, okay? (laughs) Also... Will Jews and Gentiles come together as one, or will they exist as two separate ethnic groups divided along lines of race? There were dietary laws. There were all kinds of festivals in the Old Testament. Did these new believers have to observe those? And so these are the issues that are going to get sorted out tonight. Remember, we were looking at this map last time in Acts chapter 14. And in Acts 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas. They had already been serving for several years at this little church here called Antioch. And this Antioch was the the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a massive, very influential city. And it's in this city that non-Jews started coming to Christ in very large numbers. And so you had a church that was both non-Jews and Jews, and they were having fellowship with one another. You had racial reconciliation happening. You had people experiencing the love of God together. A very exciting movement of God here. At a certain point, the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas west out to Cyprus, and then up they went into southern Turkey, the the province of southern Galatia, which included these others up here, and they traveled from city to city telling people about Jesus, going first to the Jews there, and then a bunch of Gentiles started responding. And so they had all these churches, again, up there that were mixed, both Jews and non-Jews. And it was also very exciting. And they spent about, you know, anywhere from eight months to a year and a half traveling through these, these different villages and then traveling back again to Antioch. And we read last time that they returned in Acts 14, 27. They called the church together and they reported everything God had done through them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And so this would have been very exciting to Antioch because there were so many non-Jews there. They'd be excited to see other Gentiles come to faith. But when Paul got back to Antioch, as those days stretched into weeks, stretched into months, he started to come face to face with problems on two different fronts. First of all, as reports trickled back along this road, you can see that major road stitching together Antioch, Iconium, Derby, coming around 
the corner to, to Antioch where Paul was. Travelers coming back, they started telling him about problems. You see, that there were false teachers coming in after Paul had left there, and they began to teach a very different doctrine than what Paul had taught. And the strategy of these false teachers was twofold. So you can imagine, you know, you're a, a new Gentile convert, you know, in the city of Lystra, for example, and you're sitting there and you show up for home church one week and you look across the room and what do you see? But you see this guy <laughs> coming in with a two-pronged attack. These are Pharisee type people. If you're with us for the book of Luke, you remember these guys. You remember how much Jesus detested these guys, how angry he got about their hypocrisy. This was like the most elite holy club in the Judaism of Jesus's day. These guys were so scrupulous, they kept every single law and they looked down on everyone else for not being as holy as they were. And Jesus was infuriated by these guys because they thought they were good enough to be accepted by God. And they were leading other people astray as to what God wanted. Well, some of these Pharisees came to Christ and yet it was hard for them to leave behind they're old legalistic ways. And there were, you know, this is just our tendency. We, we, we tend to move from grace back over onto rules. What are the rules? And these guys came in with, with two points. First of all, they would question Paul's authority as an apostle and as a teacher. They would start teaching their thing and they'd be like, wait a minute, that's not what Paul taught. And they're like, oh, Paul, yes. Well, you know, Paul, he, he was not one of the original 12 apostles. And he was never personally discipled by Jesus. He, he's hardly ever been to Jerusalem. And that's why he gets confused sometimes. Secondly, they would then add the law back in. They were like, that's so wonderful that you're a Christian now, that you've accepted this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Now we've come here to complete your discipleship. Shing. Shing, shing, shing. You know, the Old Testament law says you must be circumcised on the eighth day. Shing, shing. You don't look like you've been circumcised. And so you got these guys, you know, you're, you're 25. You just converted from the worship of Diana and the emperor to Christ and you've got all this peace and joy and these guys come along and you're like, look, I love Jesus, but I don't know if I can go through that <laughs> in a time before anesthesia and, and antibiotics. I mean, there were all kinds of risks going, going along with this. And so you had some people walking away from Christ because they didn't want to get circumcised. You had other people who were maybe, uh, maybe they'd fallen back into their old life of sin, which happens to Christians and especially to new Christians. And they're feeling all guilty, and they're like, man, I, I need to do something about this guilt I feel. Maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is the answer. And so they would start doing these really intense works, like get circumcised, like follow dietary rules, and add the law back in. They wanted to do something. You know, trusting in Christ just seems way too easy. And that's why we're always trying to come before God with our works and show God why we deserve something from him. And we're always trying to make up for the bad things we've done instead of simply coming to him and receiving and trusting that what he says about me is the way I really am and trusting in radical grace and drawing close. 
And so you had some that were getting circumcised, following the laws, maybe feeling self-righteous about it. You also had the dietary laws being added back in, which meant that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they couldn't even eat together because the Jews didn't want to be defiled. In fact, they had this whole teaching, not just the dietary laws, but they had washings you were supposed to do in case you got contaminated by sin. And uh, you, you couldn't even, you know, Jews didn't even eat with unclean Gentiles. Remember how scandalous it was for Jesus to eat with those, or for Peter to eat with those Gentiles in, in the house of Cornelius? So Paul, he starts hearing these reports coming in from his churches, and he's furious that they're going to take these brand new Christian believers and take the whole yoke of the law and slam it on top of them and crush their faith. And so Paul writes his first New Testament book, the letter to the Galatians, which we have in our Bibles. And when you read, I just want to read you some highlights from the book of Galatians here. And you can see how these background issues play right into what what his approach in this letter. He starts off the very first verse. He says, this is a letter from Paul, an apostle, not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself. You know, a lot of times Paul starts the letters with, oh, there's so many good things about you and I'm so thankful for you. Not this one. Look at verse six. I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. No, he says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. He says, may they be cursed. He says, God damn anyone that comes along with a different gospel. Paul's angry. Look at chapter three, verse one. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians. Who's cast an evil spell on you? How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you trying to become perfect by human effort? He says, as you received Christ, so walk in him. Why are you going back under law, back into slavery? You know, these dietary laws, these different things that you're following, he says, look, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. You're all one in Christ. Grace is the basis of our unity. He says in 5.1, Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. No, he says, look, if you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the law of Moses. You can't just take grace and mix in a little bit of works. You can't take Christ and mix in a little bit of law. It's either Christ fulfilled the law for me and I received grace, or I'm going to do it myself. The two are incompatible. Religion and relationship. That is the heart of Christianity, and that is especially the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians. He is angry. Look how angry. Look what he says here in 5.12. He says, you know, I wish those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. You guys got the knives out. You want to cut something off? I got an idea. He's furious. He's worried. He is so concerned. He says, my children, it's like I'm in labor till Christ is formed in you. There's just a real tone of, 
of concern. I can imagine him staying up nights wondering, is all of that we did there in vain? And it's in that context that he runs into his other problem. It's not just false teachers in Galatia, it's false teachers right there in Antioch at this great church that sent him out. This church with Jews and Gentiles, the model multicultural church. They got problems. These same guys from Jerusalem, it says while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea, that's Jerusalem, arrived. And they began to teach the believers Unless you're circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Oh, well, this was bad. These guys were very influential. In fact, they were so influential, the apostle Peter was up visiting this church, had been spending some time with them. Peter apparently would travel around and teach and encourage the brethren. He had fit right, you know, he was the one that went to the house of Cornelius. He had fit right in with the Gentiles, was fully accepting them until these guys from Jerusalem showed up. And Paul tells about this in that same letter he writes to the Galatian churches. Look what he says. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who weren't circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, James, leader of the Jerusalem church, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And so you can imagine, Peter's there. You know, they would have these, uh, these, these feasts. They called them love feasts, the agapes. They would have these big dinners before their home church. And so Peter shows up, and he walks over to the table with the Gentiles. He's like, what's up, guys? And then he looks up, and what does he see? these guys. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Peter, you're not going to eat with them, are you? Those men aren't even circumcised. And Peter, is that, is that bacon? <laughs> and he's like, um, yeah, um, uh, yeah, I, was, I just um, forgot my keys here to my camel. <laughs> Sorry, guys. They're here. And he heads over to the special table, the ceremonially clean table where he's sitting with these legalists. Well, you can imagine then, Paul shows up to that same table. It's like, hey, guys, where's Peter? And they're like, oh, you mean Mr. Holy Pants? He's over there with those guys. And you know, this is Paul. He's getting these reports about all of his churches crumbling in, in, in southern Galatia that he just planted. And then he hears this and he's like, oh, where's Barnabas? I need to talk to him. <laughs> we got to do something about this. And they were like, Barnabas, he's with those guys too. Yeah, as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas. Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the man renowned for his generosity in the early church, the man who 
believed in Paul as a Christian before anybody else did and introduced him to the other brothers and the guy who went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch and who traveled all over southern Galatia, planting church after church of Jews and Gentiles with Paul. Barnabas? Why, God, why? Oh, he's on the right side of everything and even he's on the wrong side of this. You can see how contagious legalism and hypocrisy are. It's no wonder Jesus compared this to yeast silently working its way through a lump of dough, inflating it up to make itself look bigger than it really is. We need to beware the danger of slipping away from radical grace and down into works-based religion. Paul says, so what's Paul do about it? He says, well, when I saw they weren't following the truth of the gospel message, he walks right up to Peter and he says, so I said to Peter in front of all the others. So here they are. He walks right over to the Pharisee table and there's Peter and the other guys. And he's like, well, Peter, isn't this interesting? Before these guys got here, you were eating with those guys. But now these guys get here and you're acting like you don't. You were eating all the food they were eating. Did you tell them your, your nickname, Captain Porkchop? <laughs> he says, look, you're a Jew by birth. You've discarded the Jewish laws. You're living like a Gentile. Why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Look, Peter, you and I, we're both Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. But how are we saved? He says, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, the great secret of Christianity. People ask about Christianity, they think it's about a bunch of rules you follow, maybe God will accept you. He says, no, it's never by obeying the law. I put my trust in Jesus Christ as a sinner and I'm saved by grace. He says, we believed in Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. He says like four different ways there. Because no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. You taking notes on that? Never can you be made right with God by law. Well, Paul and Barnabas, it says, disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Now, apparently, this is, by this time, Barnabas had come back over to the right side on this debate. And he says, finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, a distance of 250 miles, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. So that's a pretty big deal, where you're just like, we can't work this out, so uh, let's just go ahead and walk 250 miles to Jerusalem, and we'll just settle this once and for all. Have you ever had a, a, a debate you were in where you're like, you know what, let's just walk to Detroit, okay? <laughs> and then walk another 50 miles into Canada, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll settle this once and for all, okay? Paul's like, a walk. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> they had to settle this. 
This was too big of a deal. It wasn't just affecting one church. It was affecting every church. We, we, we got to settle this once and for all. And so they walked a long journey from Antioch down to Jerusalem. It says as they went, um, the church sent delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and then in Samaria to visit the believers. So they're stopping, they're talking to Christian churches all along the way, catching up. They're updating them on what's been happening. They told them to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. They're so excited. Other people meeting Christ. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. So it's a mixed group. It's the original apostles, some subset of them. And they had they'd raised up new leaders by this time. And they reported everything God had done through them. And so this must have gone on for some time. They gathered the church together for this discussion. And there's one group that's not very excited about this. And they look over and once again, they see these guys. <laughs> They're like, <clears throat> you know, we're here for a discussion. We're not just here to catch up about Gentiles. Some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. And this probably, Luke doesn't give us much of this conversation. There was probably a lengthy debate. There was lengthy discussion. There's probably people citing Old Testament scriptures, citing uh, the teachings of Jesus, citing experiences that they'd had, things that they had seen. And it says, at the meeting, after long discussion, Peter stood up to speak. Peter, we haven't heard from him since Paul called him out in front of everybody up in Antioch, have we? You know, if, if spiritual leadership worked like leadership in the world does, this would be Peter's chance to take Paul down a notch. You know, Paul was a nobody practically here in Antioch compared to Peter. You know, Peter, this was his home court. You know, he could say anything he wanted here and, uh, you know, take Paul down and even the series at one-to-one. So let's see what he does. Peter stands to speak and he addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. Peter says, have you read Acts chapter 10? I mean, if anybody knows something about preaching to the Gentiles, it'd be this guy right here, you know, Simon, a.k.a. Peter, a.k.a. The Rock, a.k.a. the guy with the keys to the kingdom. And I was there when we unlocked the, the expansion of the Gospels at, at Pentecost to the, to the Jews. I was there at the expansion into Samaria. I was there at Cornelius' house when the Gospel went to the Gentiles, That was me. Remember that? And then he says, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, 
for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So Peter says, long before they even had a chance to get circumcised, God wasn't focusing on that. He wasn't looking at whether they were circumcised or whether they were obeying the dietary laws or any of these other things. He looked at their hearts and he said, are they putting their trust in Jesus or not? And he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside them. And so Peter says, look, if you're going to blame anybody for this, blame God. Because he's the one who keeps cleansing Gentiles and giving them the Holy Spirit. And he said, if there's anything I learned from that that lesson at Cornelius' house, it's that when God calls something clean, we dare not call it unclean. And that's a truth we would do well to remember in our Christian lives. When God calls you clean, you do not call it unclean. You view yourself the way he views you. And if you're not doing that, that's the biggest problem in your spiritual life. It's not all the sin you're into. It's not your, your, your addictions, your habits, the way you messed up last night or today. It's your refusal to view yourself the way God does and to thank him for it. And to come to God in Christ based on the finished work of Christ. He says, so why are you now challenging God by burdening these Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. The yoke's the big heavy thing they put on the ox to pull the thing that they pull. (laughs) And he says, who even ever kept the law anyway? You guys are telling to keep the law. You're you're acting like you keep the law. Have Have you read the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Have you ever kept that for a single hour? Have you, have you heard Jesus teach? Has anybody told you? He said, look, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, look, even if you lust in your heart, you're guilty. I mean, just because you don't have the courage to actually follow through with the adultery, you're, you're, you're doing it in your mind. You know, you get angry unrighteously in any way, you're guilty enough to go to hell. No, we could never keep the law. We've never kept the law. Wake up. Jesus came with a different yoke. He said, I'm coming to all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've come and you shall find rest for your souls. You want rest for your soul? That's what he offers. A rest you can never find under the law because there's always something else you need to do. There's always some other way you're failing and it's going to turn you into a legalistic hypocrite. And then I imagine him looking over at Paul as he delivers his concluding argument here. He says, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Which is a pretty good summary of what Paul yelled at him across the table up at Antioch in Galatians 2.16. That's the only way to be saved. And Peter, this is the last time we hear about Peter in the whole book of Acts. 
It's almost as though he takes the keys of the kingdom and he unlocks the last lock and pushes the door open and then just rides off into the sunset. His final, as far as Luke's concerned, his, his final contribution here to the, the story he's writing is this right here. Now, we got some epistles from Peter that come later as well, but this is, this is Peter really comes through here. He's not worldly. He's not, he's not a leader in the world who's political and bitter and can't, can't see past his ego being pricked to admit that he was wrong. No, he lays down his pride. He lays down whatever bitterness he might have had. And he says, no, these guys are right. And we cannot add the law to the Gentiles. It must not be. Well, this appears to have been the turning point in this debate. It it really silenced the critics. And it says everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They just tell story after story of God's grace. And I imagine there were tears as people heard about those meeting Christ for the first time and turning from their, their old ways to the love of God. And when they had finished, there's one more voice here, James, stood up. This is not James the Apostle we read about in the Gospels. That's James the son of Zebedee, John's brother. He got killed back in Acts chapter 12, beheaded by Herod. Agrippa. Uh, there was also, there, there, there was a James, though, who was the brother of Jesus. Jesus had like four brothers at least named in the, in the Gospels, and at least multiple sisters, so at least two sisters. During his ministry, they, they thought he was crazy. You can imagine how you'd feel if your brother started walking around saying he was the Messiah. <laughs> well, James was Jesus' brother, and We learn that after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he made sure to make a stop at James' place. And he comes waltzing right in, and he's like, so what do you think now? And James is like, I believe. He became an influential leader. And In fact, as Peter goes out on the road, James seems to rise to a position of prominence here in the Jerusalem church. By this time, he had probably already written his, his epistle, We have the letter of James in the New Testament. That was this guy right here. And so this is the James, not Zebedee, also not James, son of Alphaeus. There were two Jameses in the original 12. He's neither of them. He's Jesus' brother James. They had a lot of Jameses back then. A lot of Judases too. There were two, two disciples named Judas, and then Jesus had a brother named Judas, who is the Jude who wrote Jude in the New Testament. So anyway, James. We... We actually know about James from secular history. Josephus writes about James. He calls him James the Just. They said they called him camel knees because he was on his knees praying so much. He had these thick calluses down there. <laughs> so he was, he was, though, unfortunately, he was killed. He was stoned in, in 62 AD, killed. Um, suddenly, it was tragic. And, uh, but, uh, you know, for, he, served, he served the Lord for a good 30 years here. And so he stands up at the end to try to summarize and put in his, his opinion on what they should do. And he said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. James is like, yes, I've read Acts chapter 10. I remember that well. 
And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. So he, he points to the scriptures and says, look at the scriptures. We shouldn't be surprised this is happening. Look what's written in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, Amos writes, Afterward, I'll return and restore the fallen house of David, that's the Jews. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it. So the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. So he's going he's to regather the Jews from their exile in Babylon. And then the purpose is not just for the Jews' sake, but he wants all of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to seek God as well. All those I've called to be mine. And so what's he say about the Gentiles? Those are also my people now. It's not just the Jews anymore. The Gentiles through the church can become mine. And we belong to him forever. And we're joined to Christ. And we're adopted as his son, it says, or daughter. And that's a, that's a bond that will never be broken. He who made these things known so long ago. God knew all this was happening. This was his plan all along to work through the Jewish nation to raise up the scriptures and a, and a Messiah and then to go out to all the nations. And so James says, my judgment is we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write, they're going to write a letter as a result of this, and here's what we'll tell them. They need to abstain from eating food offered to idols, sexual immorality, okay, eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Okay. So this is a strange conclusion. What's the point? Well, the first thing we need to note is what's not on this list, and that's circumcision. So they don't need to be circumcised. Also, what's going on here, it's not a matter of salvation, but a matter of the mission at stake. These were Gentile pagan practices. And as he goes on to say, look, the laws of Moses, they've been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. He says, look, all throughout the Roman Empire, you've got pockets, you've got communities of Jews there that are totally familiar with the Old Testament laws and observe these dietary laws and all these other laws as well. And he says, we want to reach them too. We don't want to just reach Gentiles. And if, we, if we've got these Gentiles and right there in front of these, these Jews, you know, they're like strangling an animal to death and they're just like eating it as part of their pagan practices, they're going to be like, so this is the new, the, 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 the full extension of the Old Testament? No, thank you. And so what they're calling for is some sensitivity to the Jews we're trying to reach as well. And in fact, this question of food offered to idols and things like that, they were, they'd offer food up in these temples as part of the sacrifices. And then, um, you know, sometimes they'd, they'd go right down to the temple and eat there. And then they'd end up falling into sin because... You know, this list of things here, these were all associated with pagan temple worship. The food, you know, the strangled animals, you know, Jews, they, um, they had certain ways they had to kill the animal to drain all the blood out. They'd slit the throat, they'd hang it up, all the blood would come out. Um, and if you strangle an animal, what's not going to come out is the blood. And so he's like, look, let's just, um, I mean, obviously you should stay away from sexual immorality, right? 
And that was such a problem in these cities. But he's like, this whole temple scene, let's, let's stay away from that, okay? Not as a matter of salvation, but for other reasons. So we can reach Jews. And I think they were also worried about these pagans falling. Just going to the, going to the temple was just it was too much temptation. So the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. So they send two of their own guys. Who did they send? The men chosen were two of the church leaders. Judas, another Judas there, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. So Silas was actually a Greek who was a leader there in Jerusalem, Greek background. Judas um, was apparently... Jewish. Uh, Silas was not even circumcised, by the way. So um, <clears throat> they send Paul, Barnabas, and then Judas and Silas. So they don't just have the letter from Jerusalem, but they also have some guys from Jerusalem who can, who can vouch for the authenticity of this. They need two, two or more witnesses, was an Old Testament principle. And here's the letter. So Luke just copies the letter right in. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It's written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So not just to Paul's group there, his church in Antioch, but Syria, which was the area north of Antioch, and then Cilicia, which was southern Turkey, right around the corner there where all these churches were. And so he basically, Paul's like, we need to, can you put in those other places as well? Because he wants to wipe out this legalism that's infecting his groups that he's planted. Greetings. We understand some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. Look, we didn't send them. So the men that claim to be from James were not actually sent by James. Liars. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. We love these guys who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you read about the first missionary journey? These guys were awesome. We're sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we've decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. The food to idols, the blood, the strangled thing, and the sexual morality. If you do this, you'll do well. Farewell. So the messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Yeah, I imagine the guy in the back of the circumcision line was like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> How'd you like to be the guy that got it done yesterday, though? Are you sure? <laughs> and then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. What a great story. I just see the hand of God all over this thing. God knows our tendency. He knows of our drift toward law, toward hypocrisy, that we can't be content with just plain old grace, raw grace, radical grace, but we got to add something to it. We got to do something. And so what I see here is I see Christ using Paul 
to turn the early church back from the edge of disaster. As they were skidding toward the edge of the cliff of grace and about to fall into the chasm of legalism, there was one man standing there saying, no, no, no. A former Pharisee, the only Pharisee on the right side of this in this story was Paul. To declare it's grace alone, not grace plus works, that equals works, not Christ plus law, that equals law, and negates what Christ has done and obligates you to keep the whole thing. No, it's simple grace, Paul says. Christ says, it is finished, and he meant it, and there's nothing we add to that. And the truth won out here. The other thing, though, we should not forget is how we use Peter. That Peter was a guy who was in touch enough with this grace to once again admit when he'd made a big mistake in front of a lot of people. To cling to grace like we have to do if we're going to walk with God. To admit he was wrong and to take a stand for the truth. For the God who gives us a basis to actually work through our conflicts and our disagreements, the basis of grace. Lord, I am thankful for your grace. I'm thankful that one of the things that makes me appreciate it most is the times in my life where I've forgotten about it and I've lived as though it weren't true and I've really hurt the people around me and yet you've taken me back anyway and you've been so gentle and patient with me. I pray that we'd all have a deep and deepening appreciation of the forgiveness you've given us, that we would start presenting ourselves, Lord, or continue presenting ourselves in Christ, the way you see us, and not based on how I performed yesterday or today or, or recently. I pray, too, for any non-Christians that have never come to your grace in the first place, that they would see that becoming a Christian is not taking on some burden of the law, but it's being set free, finally, under grace. And I pray that they would experience the peace and joy. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.